whatever your financial goals are, and if you feel like you're just not getting there, or you feel regret, or you feel like you're behind, you're beating yourself up. Please don't forgive yourself first. We have to love ourselves into abundance, and so the first act of abundance is actually self-forgiveness. Then we can start on that positive footing and move forward from there. Hello, hello, and welcome to Inside Out. It's your girl Jane Z. Today's guest is Shang, who is the personal finance guru behind Save My Sense, a blog and Instagram page all about personal finance and saving for retirement. I came across Shang in a Facebook group called Asian Hustle Network, where she posted about her journey to becoming a millionaire and financially independent at age 31. And no, she didn't IPO a company or inherit a trust fund or win the lottery. She was able to do it through saving almost 50% during her 20s. You know, she invested the money wisely and luckily also came out of college and business school with no student debt. Going into recording this episode, I had this expectation that we were going to have this really quantitative conversation all about finance and numbers and tactics around saving. But what this actually involved into was a much deeper conversation around mindset. We talked about self-worth, how you set your own version of success. It turns out both Shang and I, you know, we had friends who were getting on the Forbes 30 under 30 list and that somehow entered in the back of our minds as this arbitrary goal to work towards. Um, And we both also came from immigrant families who had a sort of scarcity mindset around money. Like, there's never enough, always worried, it'll be gone, that sort of thing. And over the years, Shang has learned to shift that scarcity mindset into a mindset of abundance. One of the things I've taken away from this conversation is these three simple words, I get to. This is something that Shang uses all the time now. You know, instead of complaining that I have to get up and work, for example, reframe that to say, I get to work. I have a job, which is not something to be taken for granted. I get to have clean water. I get to cook healthy meals. You know, there is a lot to appreciate in life, no matter what your bank account looks like. All that to say, this was a really, really insightful conversation. Honestly, one of my favorite episodes so far. And I hope you find some of this relatable, whether it's awareness about your own mindset around money or taking in some of Shang's practical tips around saving. As always, if you enjoy this episode, I would love to hear from you. Where are you tuning in from? What did you like most about this episode? You can find me on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane, and we can chat there. And you can find Shang at Save My Sense. If you are new to the Inside Out podcast, make sure to follow on Apple or Spotify for conversations like this every Tuesday. All right, onto the show. This is Inside Out with Jane Z, the podcast that helps you build a thriving business without losing your mind. My name is Jane, and my mission is to help you build and grow your business while having time for the people and things that matter in your life. Join me every Tuesday as I sit down with an entrepreneur who's already building their dream business. We'll walk through their journey, tips for success, and how to mentally prepare for the long road ahead. Because building your dream business and dream life is the long game. 
And that's what we're all about, right here on Inside Out. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jane. So excited to be here today. Me too. When I saw you post in the Facebook group, we're both a part of Asian Hustle Network about achieving financial independence and becoming a millionaire at 31. I was so enthralled with your story and I thought, oh, we have to get her on the podcast. So I'm so excited that you're here with us today. Since today's topic is all about personal finance and money, I'd love to hear about how your upbringing influenced your values around money, You know, what kind of uh, values and attitudes your parents held around money. I'm a child of immigrants. So I immigrated to the United States when I was 10 with my parents. Um, we lived in China and Europe before then. And with my parents' immigrant mindset, I think my childhood was all about being frugal. I saw my mom just mm -hmm. shopping around for the cheapest food possible. My dad always negotiating our phone bill. So growing up, I had a lot of understanding that money is something to be saved and being very, very Asian and all of that. My parents also drilled it into my head. Gotta go to a good school. Gotta be a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, so you can make a lot of money. So growing up, I was taught very much to measure my life by money and success. I can definitely relate to that. Having also immigrated from China and seeing my parents always worry about money or, you know, when we first moved to Canada, my mom got a job as a dishwasher while my dad tried to find an actual job as an engineer. And we lived in tiny basement, one bedroom apartments. I think that kind of attitude really you know, instills this like saving and being frugal, but also this like scarcity mindset, which I did want to ask you about later on, because you've sort of shifted to a more abundance mindset. Yep. Would you say that that kind of that kind of mindset around being frugal and saving has carried with you throughout your adult life? I think so. Having seen how little my parents grew up also made me feel that, hey, there's if they can do it, so can I. So even though I grew up with a lot more possessions and wealth than my parents did, if I need to be frugal, I remind myself my parents went through and I said, they make sacrifices for their kids. And so I can do that as well. There's a really cool story too of how your dad became a sort of self-made world-renowned professor. Can you share a bit about that? My dad is brilliant at what he does. So he was a professor at a lot of really famous universities. And he completely basically pulled up by the bootstraps. When my dad was really young, they were in China. It was the Cultural Revolution. The schools were shut. Education was not valued at that time. The youth were sent to work in the farms. And my dad studied in secret. He studied in secret. He wanted to go to school. And finally, when the Cultural Revolution ended and they had the national university test, my dad tested, and he didn't really pass the first time. He didn't give up. He tested again. And lo and behold, he tested first out of 10 million people in his province. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, that's, that's just Whoa. nuts, nuts. Like, he, he, at first, he was like, I can't find my name on the test score. They're like, oh, you're, you're number one. <laughs> that's you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. He's a genius. Yeah, so wow. that afforded him a full ride to college and then all the opportunities opened up after that. So over time, my dad was able to raise, you know, his stature, bring along my family and make uh, pretty good money from all of it. 
Wow. Okay. I'm very curious because this sounds a little similar to my parents. They were the first of both their families to go to college. Was it like drilled from you as a kid that, you know, your, your dad's this like super smart guy and he's done all these amazing things and now it's your turn. Oh my gosh, Jane, the pressure was huge. Um, I'm an only child. And even mm. though I'm a woman, my parents brought me up like the son they never had. So there was so <laughs> much pressure um, oh my gosh. to do well. And my parents constantly asked me when I was young, what do you want to do? How are you going to get there? What do you want to do in life? Let's take the lessons you need. So I had piano lessons. I had ballet lessons. I took swim lessons. Um, I had extra tutoring. My mom took me to the library so that, you know, at in fourth grade, I was borrowing books on brain surgery and heart surgery, like just like crazy, oh crazy God. stuff. By choice? They said, would wow. you like to be a doctor? I'm like, well, can I just at least figure out what being a doctor is all about? So that's mm. why I went to borrow those books. They drilled it in me. And I wow. think there was so much pressure growing up to be the best. And anytime that I didn't get to be the best, they, you know, they didn't know how to encourage me other than the Chinese way, which was like, it was just mm -hmm. like, oh, that wasn't good enough. Like whenever I got anything mm -hmm. less than a hundred, it's like, oh, you failed. Um, so it was, it was really yeah. hard to uh. grow up with that and, and try to please my parents and definitely got depressed as a result. But I also mm -hmm. say without my parents' pressure, I probably also wouldn't have studied as hard. I understand why they did it, but I also don't think it's the only way to be successful in life. Was there a point in your life when you started letting go of that idea of having to please your parents? I tried starting in college and oh my goodness, we had so many fights um, because I decided to major in economics. I felt that engineering mm -hmm. wasn't for me. Science wasn't for me. I was not going to be a doctor and I would be interested in doing business, which my parents have no concept of. And I started majoring <laughs> in economics and doing all that. And my parents were just not all that happy. And I started trying to mm. explain to them in my really, really bad Chinese that I want to explore my own path. And there were a lot of mm. fights, tons of fights over oh. it. <laughs> And that's interesting because if you think about success in terms of money, business is all about money. It's nowadays, I feel like it's, it's one of the more traditional routes to go into economics or business school. So you got an economics degree and then what did your early career look like in your twenties? Yeah. Funny enough, I'm still doing what I did in my early twenties, which is strategy consulting. And I picked that because I, I genuinely like the work, the strategy work. So I joined a strategy consulting company right out of college and had a great time. Then did that for like the traditional two to three years, applied to business school, went to business school at University of Chicago Booth. And then my interest mm -hmm. started to diversify a lot more. And after that, I did things mm -hmm. like entrepreneurship, corporate strategy before coming back to strategy consulting. So by strategy consulting, do you mean like the, the big five, like management consulting? Yep. yep. Uh, my company's a little bit more, more specialized in that we focus mainly on strategy. So less so implementation, which means less travel. So that's good for me. Yeah. Yeah. When you say entrepreneurship, do you mean when you started your own business or? Yeah, I was okay. an accidental entrepreneur in that I really liked to take photos. And in college, I would take a lot of photos of my girlfriends who were uh, dancers and they have a lot of dance performances. Now, one of them got engaged and she's like, oh, I need engagement photos. 
I was like, I have no clue what the heck engagement photos are. The night before I Googled what it was, I'm like, okay, I can kind of do that and did engagement <laughs> photos. Um, funny enough, when I was doing strategy consulting first time, I craved doing something creative. And so on nights and weekends, I started mm. taking photographs of other people. And somehow that just blossomed into a business. Because I was like, if I'm consulting other businesses on how to run a business, I should run a business myself just to make sure I know what yes. I'm talking about. <laughs> and so I did that. Mm -hmm. And um, in business school, I learned a lot more about like traditional tech-based startup and entrepreneurship. And um, I worked for two startups in business school. I worked for a acquired tech startup after business school, so definitely went completely the other way from consulting into entrepreneurship. You were busy. <laughs> I, I took the <laughs> advice of someone who told me when I was you know, fresh out of college, they said, your 20s are your decade of exploration and risk taking because you're likely not married. You likely don't have kids. So just take every darn mm. risk you can before you need to settle down. And I took that to heart. And that's when my 20s were just wild compared to my 30s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's this book, I, I think it's behind me on the shelf here somewhere called The Defining Decade. And it's written by a psychologist. And it's all about your 20s. And she has this framework called identity crisis and identity capital. And in your 20s, you're supposed to do the wild stuff like the identity crisis stuff, and build up capital like social capital, different skills, things like that, which it sounds like you were definitely doing all those things. Yes. And I loved it. I, I, I loved my 20s for, for what they were. It was a good decade. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So I read somewhere, I think in your blog, that when you started doing wedding photography, at one point you lived in Boston and it was your goal to become a photographer for the Boston Public Library weddings. It's funny, like side note, I'm doing wedding planning for my own wedding right now and like looking at venues uh -huh. like that. So I was like, yeah, that is definitely the high end venue. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I made it the goal because I said I, I started from being this um, and back then people advertised on Craigslist instead of Facebook marketplace um, I went from being a Craigslist photographer which is like the lowest of the low end and I said I want to be luxury Boston Public Library is my number one goal to photograph and so I just set that as a goal and every year I tried to upgrade the venues that I get to shoot at I upgraded my skills and I showed better and better photography until yes one day someone called in with a Boston Public Library wedding. And I was like, I'm giving you a big discount because I want to shoot it and I want it. And that was awesome. Wow, that's amazing. And then did you keep doing Boston Public Library shoots after that? Well, they don't come every day because it takes a lot of money to, to do one. <laughs> I, I did get another one after that and I got in other inquiries. I was also moving. So I started doing weddings in Chicago and weddings in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Wedding photography is also kind of difficult to do as a nomad because you do need to establish mm -hmm. a presence in a local market. But it was good mm -hmm. stuff. I, I learned so much from that experience. What are some of the things you learned, especially on the business side? Well, the best business people are salespeople through and through. Mm -hmm. No matter what hardcore skills you have, whether you are the world's best technical photographer or you are an amazing engineer so you can build apps or if you are in the sciences, you can create cool new molecules or whatever. If it doesn't sell, you don't make money. And that's mm -hmm. what I learned that even though I was not the best photographer from a lighting and creativity point of view, I loved selling. 
And that's what led hmm. to my photography business being so, so successful is because I focus so much more on the business end of things. And the photography passed the standard, but didn't need to be the best. Mm, interesting. Any sales tips? Listen more than you talk, which is really hard on the sales pitch because you want to talk about your company. You want to sell them on everything that you do. But if you learn truly about your customer's needs, what is it that they want? What is it that they hate? What is it that they want that you can meet? Then selling is as easy as having a personal conversation. It will not feel sleazy. It will not feel like a hard sell. It's just a good conversation. Sounds like the basics of developing a relationship too. It is. Sales is relationship mm -hmm. development. And the best salespeople I know are just really fun, open, outgoing people to be around. Wow. So you were running this photography business alongside your consulting day job. How did you decide on photography as an actual side hustle? Because you said at first you were doing it for fun and then you realized like, okay, I can make some money from this. How did you decide like, I'm going to put my all into this and go full force on, on both fronts? Yeah, because uh, for some time I was also looking into teaching myself a little bit more data analysis graphic design. I was like, should I freelance mm. that? And well, because it's a side hustle, I can't put my full-time hours into it. And so I said, I'm going to just take a skill that I know that I'm already good at and monetize that. I think a lot of people, mm. when they try to do a side hustle, they pick one and they're like, well, then I have to like teach myself how to do it. And I'm like, no, just shortcut it. Do something that you already are good at doing. And I can't do consulting on the side because then it would uh, hit my non-compete, uh, my, mm, my day job. Right. Did you ever think about doing your photography full-time? I definitely thought about it. I'll be honest, I made a lot more money as a consultant than I did as a photographer. <laughs> and also, mm -hmm. it was physically difficult as a job because you're carrying a lot of equipment and I'm kind of a small person. I'm like five <laughs> foot two and I often had assistants like carry my, schlep my stuff for me, which now that I think about it is kind of like, uh, that makes me sound really like prima donna. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> on, on top of that, um, I wanted love. I was in my twenties. I was doing all these weddings. So I was like, I want that. I want to get married. Mm. And when do people date mm. on weekends and on nights? So if I dedicated my whole life to photography full time, I wouldn't have the personal time to date. So I actually pull back on photography in order to make time for dating and to find a husband. <laughs> That's so funny how it came full circles. Like you're photographing other people's weddings and then, okay, yeah. time to lock in your own husband. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how did you meet your husband? Business school, which was funny because, um, so I sadly had gotten out of a pretty serious relationship right, right before business school. We just decided we weren't right for each other. And I went to business school really heartbroken. And then I was also like, no, there's mm -hmm. no way I'm going to meet someone in business school. Like business school's full of people <laughs> who want to go to finance and they're all like kind of a jerk. So and I was like, mm -hmm. I just, I just got to get through business school, get it to uh, startups and tech. I'm going to move to San Francisco and I'm going to find myself a Chinese engineer to get married to. I thought, <laughs> that, I thought that was my plan because like my parents are very traditional and they wanted me to marry someone. Uh -huh. And um, I was so also funny. starting to, you know, do online dating. This is when online dating just really started to become acceptable. Like you don't have to like say, oh, I met my uh, boyfriend 
at a bar through an online app. Like you didn't have to like hide the fact that you did online <laughs> dating. So I did that, and I met some really cool people in Chicago. Then I ran into who's now my husband at a school function. We just we never overlapped for the first three months of being in school because we had completely different class schedules, completely different friend circles. So I never met him, but I ran into him, and I, being the business school person, went up and I was like, "Oh, you work in startups? Let's network. I, I want to talk to you. I want to hear about your background and tell me about your startup experience." And he laughed because he just thought I was this really cute girl, and he wanted to actually. Meet me in like the more personal sense. And he's like, "Oh my goodness, I've been networked with her," um, and he kind of chuckled. <laughs> and that uh, we, we quote unquote networking. I know, I know. <laughs> I actually we didn't start out dating because I was like going on dates with other people. And uh, for the first year of business school, we were just really good friends. But that friendship blossomed into a date the week, the first week of our second year of school. And the rest is history. Once we went on our first date, I was like, "Oh my gosh." Okay, uh, and and we kind of went on from there. I love that, and and it's also so fitting because your husband is a big part of your kind of financial independence journey, and you guys talk a lot about saving and financial planning together. Can you tell the story of how I think it was he was the one that proposed the idea of like let's save a ton while we're in our twenties? Yes. When we started talking about marriage seriously, moving towards engagement, my husband also came from a very frugal background, working class family, and he said, "I don't want to fall into the two income trap." This is a topic that Elizabeth Warren has written about. He does not mm-hmm. want the two of us to always feel like we need to work two jobs in order to ha- afford children. Because he's like, there's always such a high likelihood with our kinds of jobs to be out of a job, which can happen at any time because we're at-will employees. So mm-hmm. he proposed the super radical idea of the two of us living off of the lower of our two incomes for the rest of our lives to free ourselves from this trap. One of us could be a stay-at-home parent, and it wasn't always necessarily the mom. He proposed it as either a mom or dad scenario, and then also we wouldn't fear unemployment. It blew my mind. I was already pretty frugal. My saving rate was like maybe thirty, thirty, forty percent. But this meant that I had to save like mm. close, to, closer to fifty percent, um, which was hard because it actually meant pulling back on some areas that I thought were necessary. But it meant like pulling back on rent, pulling back on transportation and on food and travel and things like that to really make it work. Well, a couple of years into this, a friend of mine said, "Hey, have you ever heard of Mr. Money Mustache?" I was like, "What?" And my friend said, "Oh, it's this blogger <laughs> who basically preaches the frugal early retirement lifestyle, and I think you guys are on it. Like you guys are on that same track." And I went over. I read Mr. Money Mustache. I'm like, "Oh my gosh, there's this whole world called fire, and I think that's what we're doing." And then so that's uh, that's when I finally <laughs> found like my tribe. I was like, "Oh my gosh, there are other people mm. doing what we're doing. I don't feel so alone anymore." I never really interacted on the Mr. Money Mustache forum because I'm not a forums kind of person. But after that, it didn't feel like I was the only person in the world trying to radically save money. <laughs> Childcare as a motivating factor, I feel like is so quintessentially American. Yep. <laughs> I was shocked when I moved to this country to learn that preschool can be like twenty grand a year for like a. Baby, yep. I was like, "That's crazy." Yeah. And then once that's over, you got to start saving for college. Ugh. Education has grown faster than uh, inflation. 
for many years, and and that's really hard. Um, the difference between how much a rich family can invest towards education versus a poor family is so wide, and the fact that the quality of education is tied to property values and property taxes. It's a very unequal society mm. in the United States right now. Mm. Where did you uh, end up going to high school and college? Um, so for high school, I went to Lexington High School in Massachusetts. It's a public high school, but in one of those super super rich suburbs where all the mm. property taxes went to the school. Yeah, Lexington's really nice. Yeah, it's fancy. <laughs> um, a bunch of professors' mm-hmm. kids, just like, and I didn't know how rich the families were because my my parents were so frugal. I always thought we were poor. Like I was so convinced that we were so poor growing up because all the other friends had like big houses and nice cars, and we were like living on the edge of town in a tiny house. My parents cut their own grass and everything. But anyway, uh, I joined the ranks of Harvard after that, and then for business school, I went to University of Chicago. Nice, nice.、Um, did you graduate college with any student debt? I was very, very lucky not to, and I know that puts me in the very privileged minority in this country because my dad was frugal and he saved and he learned to invest all on his own. He was able to pay for my college full ride. For business school, I got like very, very big scholarship to go to business school. I didn't even know there were business、mm. school scholarships until I got one, and then my parents、uh, mm. covered the rest. That's amazing. So that definitely helped. By the time you got to thirty-one,、yeah. right? So just to kind of summarize the buckets that you worked towards, there was the income part. So you had your consulting day job plus your wedding photography business, and then luckily no student debt,、yep. so no big debts there. And then the third piece, I'd love to hear about how you went about your saving strategy and. Caveat: It's not like official investing advice, but would love to hear how you would think about investing as sort of a newbie or or someone new to saving for retirement. Yeah, I was very lucky that when I was a teen, two things happened. One, my middle school had a elective on investing in the stock market, so I took that class as a middle、mm. schooler. I kind of learned the basics of、wow. what's a stock price, what's a stock split. And why you should buy low and sell high, and then we played with it by using like a fake portfolio. I totally lost money. I was like, okay, I'm not a very good stock picker. <laughs>、um, at the same time, when my dad started getting into investing, my dad didn't actually seriously start investing money until he was almost 40 years old. So lots of hope for people listening、mm-hmm. to this. My dad's a multimillionaire. He didn't start investing until、wow. he was 40 years old. And、um, he tried to pass his knowledge to me. So he had a brokerage account, and he explained that he picked some stocks. I think like Adobe was like one of them. And he eventually moved to index funds, but that was later on in life. So when I graduated college, I was under the impression that I needed to go pick individual stocks. Life-saving advice:、mm. I'm in a strategy consulting firm. A lot of our work is around mergers and transactions. Because of that, we were advised by、uh, HR at a company. To say, look, we, you have a four hundred one k, and you can invest however way you want. We strongly recommend that you do the mutual funds and not individual stocks, so that you don't get caught by、mm. SEC for insider trading, because you're going to be privy to a lot of confidential、uh. Uh, mergers and transactions. So that was actually life-saving advice, because as we know today, mutual funds and index funds are diversified, and they make it so much easier for people to invest. And take away the guessing game of like, well, which stocks do I pick? Because they do it for you. Again, not investing advice, but for anyone trying to get their feet wet into investing today, don't worry about picking individual stocks. That's actually 
a really risky way to go in investing. Most books, such as The Simple Path to Wealth, uh, Broke Millennial takes on investing. Um, all these books would tell you low-cost index funds are the way to go for most people. And even Warren Buffett said, hey, like, if I'm talking to like the average investor, you're going to just do fine in the market by doing index funds. And I'm really glad that that was the advice given to me. And that's always been how I invested. I did buy one stock, but, you know, that was for fun. Yeah, I, I bought that stock using play money and not so much my retirement money. Mm. Do you set aside like a small pot of play money for that kind of not gambling, but, you know, essentially <laughs> that? Currently, no. <laughs> I do set aside play money for trying out new things. Like starting this whole like Instagram thing was like a new thing. And when I did wedding photography, I had to put in, you know, substantial amount of money to buy equipment and things like that. So I would say for me to play money is not so much investing in stocks, but my play money invests in myself and my skill sets. Mm. Got it. Okay. So with all of these buckets, you had your income streams, your investing streams, and no debt. And that allowed you to become a millionaire by 31. Yep that and a good run on the stock market because the stock market did also do pretty darn well in my 20s. Um, I invested right before the Great Recession and then I bought a lot during the Great Recession just because like, I had nothing to lose. And then, so I put a lot of money in there and then I continue to be consistent and automated and over time it adds up. It, it really is. Like they say your first 10,000, mm. your first 100,000, your first million is the hardest. It is so true. Like. When people first start investing, they're like, well, I'm only putting in like $100, $200. And then the growth off of that is not exciting. Like getting $10 more a year is not exciting. And I <laughs> totally agree. That's why in the beginning it feels slow as molasses. But you have to trust <laughs> in the math. Like plot out an exponential growth chart for yourself. You'll see it goes zoom like at the end. It, it, but the thing is we have to be patient. We have to be willing to wait mm. until the end for that to happen. Because then it just snowballs with the dividends, right? Yep, dividends and exponential growth. Got it. Okay. So a lot of our audience is entrepreneurs, people who are starting their own businesses. So like you, either doing side hustles or going all in. Again, not investing advice, yeah. but how would your advice differ for someone who's trying to start a business? Yeah. You have to know your risk tolerance. We all invest according to our risk tolerances. But people who are who go all in as entrepreneurs have very, very high risk tolerance. Like if you were to play poker, you're the kind of person who goes all in on a ton of the plays. <laughs> that's just who you are. Mm -hmm. I don't meet people who are super conservative who are also entrepreneurs. It just doesn't work that way. And I also know my own limits. Like I'm probably not going to be the kind of person for a long time who's going to do like an all in, like I want to be the next Zuck, I want to be in the next Bezos, just because I, I've got my family and that's kind of my limit. So mm -hmm. if you're an entrepreneur, know your limit and know uh, the best poker players know when to fold or, or leave the table, right? And so for some people, it mm -hmm. might be, okay, a loss of 100000 For some people, it might be, I'm okay with losing 200000 And for some people, it might be two years and I'm out. And you have to draw that line for you, know that from the start, and then know to pull out. Of the people that mm -hmm. I have coached, the people with the most amount of debt is actually not the people with credit card debt or people with student loan debt. It's the people who went into a bad business and didn't pull out and just kept doubling down on losses. I've seen balance sheets of negative 300 to $400,000. 
And that's when it gets really, really hard to reverse course. Have you helped people out of a hole like that? That one, it, it has to come down to the decision to, to leave because um, there's this concept in psychology called loss aversion that you really want to mm -hmm. avoid loss. And by doing that, uh, sometimes you don't recognize that sometimes you have to have a sunk cost and you have to move out. And the people who've had three to $400,000 of debt, the main thing I needed, I want them to accept is, okay, what originally was what they were trying to do, the original path they're on, on no longer works and they have to give it up and do something completely mm -hmm. radically different to get out. And only when they can accept that is when we can see a path out of debt. You know, what's interesting is like, this is a whole nother conversation, but the whole VC funded startup world operates on that foundation of you're going to go into hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars in debt to build this thing, grow it as fast as you can. And then once you've grown it, then try to monetize it, which is so backwards if you think about it as a business, because a business is supposed to be an entity that generates money. I think that if you're the kind of entrepreneur that's going to take VC money, first of all, it's not always your money. Like, obviously, you're going to go all in. You're going to live on ramen and you're going to, like, not sleep for many years to build that business. But also you have the backing of venture capital money. So if you do you know, explode, it's not always your money that's at stake. But I agree in that if you decide to be that solo entrepreneur or you, that, like, founder kind of entrepreneur and you want to go all in, you take on the most risk of anybody. Whereas mm -hmm. a VC firm, they're making a hundred bets, hoping that one of them skyrockets and, you know, accounts for the other 99 losses. Same thing mm -hmm. for me as an average investor, I invest in index funds because I don't know which one of the U S stock market is going to be a winner or loser. So might as well just be average. And that's my approach. Mm -hmm. um, so again, mm -hmm. if, if you do want to do entrepreneurship, you got to know the risk. And if you do have family to provide for, if you've got, you know, a spouse, if you've got children, you shouldn't pursue a business at the expense of your family's basic needs. That's mm -hmm. something that I hold dear. I understand that there are many spouses and children who give up a lot for the entrepreneurial parent to, to do that. I don't think it's the most responsible thing in the world, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, financially, for sure, it's a huge risk and huge decision. And it sounds like you and your husband really have a strong partnership in that you have these conversations probably pretty frequently about money, about career path. And yeah, I'm lucky that my partner and I were open about all this stuff too. We actually recently just bought this condo together and are starting to merge our finances more, but communication is key. Yeah. You, you have to be on the same page or it's going to be really difficult because finances are one of the top three reasons for divorce. And mm. that's evident for normal people. And it's evident amongst billionaires uh, as mm -hmm. some very recent and high profile divorces have shown. Yes. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit, I'd love to hear your kind of mindset journey and how your thinking around money changed from your early 20s to later 20s and, and now. Yeah, my 30s. Um, in my mm -hmm. early 20s, I was all about getting rich because of the mindset of my parents instilled in me and that you need to be successful and you need to make a lot of money. I chose strategy consulting partially because it made a lot of money. Like no doubt that was part of the reason. And it wasn't until I was going through a lot of personal change from my breakup, going to business school, thinking about entrepreneurship where, you know, you 
often live on ramen and all of that. And I was working so hard towards this arbitrary goal of getting on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. For some reason, that was my goal. And right around when I was turning like 28, 29, I'm like, I, I don't think I'm getting on those lists. I, I have other friends get on it. I was like, darn it. I want that to be me. And I realized, I was like, mm. why did I even put that goal in place? Like, why? Who told me that that was like what would define success in my life? And at the same time, I was pulling back because I married my husband and we we're doing this like living on one income thing. And I was having a hard time. Mm -hmm. seeing socially all the people around me who graduated from the same schools I did splurge on vacations, splurge on eating out, splurge on your weddings, everything. I was like, so there must be something wrong with me. And that's when I realized that my thinking around success, around my self-worth, around money was completely not the right one. I was thinking about this totally backwards by letting the world define what success should be instead of me defining it. And so slowly, ever so slowly, and I did get some therapy for this too, I started realizing I have inherent self-worth no matter what I do and no matter how much I get paid or don't get paid. And I can choose today to feel joy. I don't have to wait for my promotion. I don't have to wait for a relationship. I don't have to wait for becoming a mom or whatever to feel joy. And I encapsulate this in these three words, I get to. Every morning when we wake up, we often say, I have to work, I have to brush my teeth, I have to drive or whatever. I say, I get to work, which means that yes, I have employment, which some people don't. I say, I get to wash my hands with clean water because how many people in the world still don't have access to clean water? A lot of people. and. Slowly, by saying that, I, I started acknowledging all the privilege and all the beautiful blessings that I already have in life. I'm also Christian, so that's a huge part of, of this viewpoint. Then I started realizing the wealth that I'm accumulating, the money that I'm earning, is not mine to keep. What, what do I mean by that? Because as I started getting very, very close to millionaire, and I was like, oh, eventually I can like travel a lot more, I can, I can spend a lot more. And we, we do do that. Like my husband and I do travel. We have stayed in nice hotels. We have flown business class. I've eaten the Michelin star restaurants. It gets old and you don't get so much more happiness from spending 10 times more than you do today. I do think that there's a baseline of needs that money can buy. Money should buy you healthcare. It should buy you safe uh, housing, clothing, and communication, and transport. Like, those, those are things I would love for everybody in the world to have. But beyond the basics, the return to, to unhappiness or whatever, it kind of plateaus. And I look at people like celebrities, and I look at billionaires, and I'm like, I'm not sure that they are significantly more happy than I am. And that's when this whole I get to attitude transformed me in my late 20s into my 30s now, where I realized, all excess wealth that I accumulate during my lifetime, I'm going to give away. I'm now about philanthropy because I think that's really mm. where meaning and joy is going to come from for me. Do you know that study? It was from maybe 10 years ago that was like income after a certain amount. I think it was $70,000. Yes. Your happiness plateaus. Yes. But I, I think the result from that study that's less talked about is that the fulfillment actually keeps going up with that income. And I think that's related to the philanthropy point you just made mm. in that 
it's not about the material goods, but having more wealth does give you the options to give back, does give you power in a sense, you know, with financial capital that can buy you social capital and allow you to invest in opportunities that you care about. Yeah. Yeah. And that really has to go from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset because a scarcity mindset would manifest even for a rich person, they would be so afraid to lose their wealth that they just corner it all for themselves and they don't really do anything mm. with it or they only use it for selfish gain. So that's, that's what scarcity looks like in a really, really, really wealthy person. Whereas abundance, mm -hmm. I like to say, look, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, God forbid, or if just something bad happens to my family tomorrow and I lose all my wealth, I still have intrinsic self-worth and I'm still worthy. I am enough. And that's why mm. um, if I lose it, I think I can gain things in different ways. I'm open to, you know, starting a new career, all of that. And abundance, you'll see that in people who love to give. That That's what abundance mm. really means is that the, we see the pie as ever growing. Like it's not a fixed pie. Not only so many people can eat from the pie, we're going to grow the pie and everybody's going to have more. I heard a quote once from Rihanna. She said her grandmother would say, if you have a dollar, that's plenty to share. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, therapy was a part of your journey. Was that kind of a big piece in helping you achieve this abundance mindset? So key. And I can't mm. believe I didn't understand it until I was almost 30 years old. Before I was, I mean, mental health is taboo. Mental health is super taboo in Asian cultures. Like if you tell someone mm -hmm. that you got mental health issues, they'd be like, oh, you're like a broken person. Like there's something mm -hmm. wrong with you. And I went yeah. to this mental health awareness conference or, or presentation. It was a screening of the movie called Looking for Luke, which is a documentary that actually followed a Harvard student who died by suicide, sadly. Mm -hmm. And it opened up the conversation about mental health and amongst Asian Americans. A doctor came up to the podium after that screening and she said, you know what? We should be getting our mental health checked out just like we get our physical health checked out. It should be like an annual checkup. Like we should treat our bodies the same way that we treat our minds and vice versa. And that's when it really clicked for me. I was like, oh, like if I have mental health issues, there's nothing wrong with me. It's just like my brain is tired or my brain is a little sick and I need some medicine. And in therapy, this, this kind of really brought it to the forefront with me that there shouldn't be shame about talking about mental health. And I will gladly share with you today, Jane, that I'm currently on an antidepressant. And there's nothing wrong with getting a little bit of help from a daily pill in order for me to function better. I, I am so grateful for modern medicine mm. that allows us to treat mental health. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that and helping destigmatize going to therapy, seeking out help and using medications too. Yeah. Any, anything that will help keep us thriving. Exactly. I did want to ask you about, you had this handy framework <laughs> called the trigger action reward framework. Can you share about that? Yeah. So let's recall, I just got married. I'm in New York city. I got all my rich friends or what I thought were rich friends who are graduates from Harvard and business school. Also, you know, sharing on social media, all their like amazing fun life. And I'm feeling FOMO. So terrible, <laughs> terrible FOMO. And uh, I was triggered. I mean, uh, this was even before the word trigger was like 
a, a really big word in, in our vernacular, I was triggered every time that, I, that someone posted their fun stuff. I was like, why can't I do that? Why do I have to stick to the stupid budget that my husband and I agreed to? I want more. I want more. And I was feeling so, mm-hmm. so miserable. And I had a tough time reducing my expenses to meet our 50% saving goal. Then I realized, I was like, what if I could turn that trigger on its head? Uh, Let's just take food, for example. I'm a huge foodie. I love eating out. I love good food. I have a refined palate, so they say. And I didn't have the budget to be eating out every day. Whenever I saw someone post a beautiful food shot, it made me want to eat out. And I I got to the bottom of it. I was like, why is it that you want to eat out so much? And how can we break this habit? I realized there were two things. One, I associated eating out with not being lonely because I'm always getting together with friends when I eat out. And two, Mm. yes, I do happen to like good tasting food. And then I turned out on its head and said, okay, now that you know what is the actual emotional, psychological need need that you're really trying to solve, let's do it in a, in a cheaper way. So my trigger is someone posts a nice uh, food shot. My action is now, whenever I see a nice food shot, I'm going to go learn a new recipe or I'm going to schedule a phone call with a friend to catch up. By doing that, not only am I adding to the get-together, so I, I call up a friend and I'm less lonely, but also by learning a new recipe, I'm addressing the, the taste side of things. And then the reward mm. is that I met my psychological need of loneliness. I, I met the, the taste needs. And then the more that I do this, the more I can pull back on my spending. So same thing for clothing. Trigger. I see someone, a fashion blogger in a beautiful clothes. Action. I'm going to save down that inspiration and figure out how to get the clothes really cheaply. I buy a lot on consignment from thrift stores, things like that. And the reward is I save money. And as I went through all of these categories, these spending categories, and applied this trigger, action, reward, trigger, action, reward framework, that's how I finally brought down my spending such that we reached a 50% saving rate without destroying my mental health, without feeling Mm. miserable. Because I, I, I figure out the psychological system. Funny enough, two authors actually write about the same pathway. James Clear and Charles Duhigg, they write about uh, the psychology of habit. And I was taking a habit pathway and rewiring my brain. That was all that this was doing. And so this is the trigger action reward framework that I now teach to people who want to learn how to be more frugal. That is so powerful. These days, we're all spending so much time on Instagram and looking at these beautiful photos, these most curated pieces of our friends' lives and these influencers' lives. And it can be so easy to feel overwhelmed and FOMO and want all of those material things. But I think what you just shared about breaking down that trigger into its psychological counterparts. So why do you feel triggered by that? I think that is so key and a great exercise. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. uh, a great realization that you don't need to follow a lot of influencers. In fact, the influencers Mm -hmm. might actually make you feel worse about your life. So follow people who make you feel good about your life. (laughs) Yes, like Save My Sense. Yes. (laughs) Yes. When did you start your blog, Save My Sense? And how is that a part of your life these days? So in 2016, when I was uh, age 31, I started, um, I've been blogging about my frugal recipes privately. Um, People found out, like my friends found out about my frugal habits. And one of them actually approached me and very bravely opened up about her debts. And I said, okay, I'll try to coach you on on getting out of debt. And then a couple more people asked the same thing. And so I I was mainly a coach at that time. I had 
safemysense.com and I, and I was coaching people and I was translating my learnings onto safemysense.com. And I knew like Instagram was like the place to be at that time to reach a lot of people. Now it's TikTok, but Instagram was the thing. I was like, look, I'm an older millennial. I don't really notice social media <laughs> thing, but I'm going to learn. I'm going to be open about it. And I went on Instagram. I, you know, created a Save My Sense account, uh, started out super ugly posts. I know, like, you do not want to see my first post. They were ugly. But I just started putting out the content <laughs> that I felt like people should learn from me coaching other people using these different frameworks. And I guess like it just kind of caught fire. People liked what I had, started sharing it. I knew how to plug into a community called the debt-free community. And it mm. just kind of grew from there. So it was, it's all organic growth and accidental influencer life. I was like, what the heck? I'm, I'm called <laughs> yeah. an influencer now. That is like totally not what I thought. Cause remember I said, like I needed to unfollow influencers. Right. In order not to feel bad about my life. And now I'm like, Oh, Oh, I, I'm an influencer. Okay. I gotta, I gotta spread a different mm -hmm. message. And my mission, the mission of save my sense right. where all the proceeds are donated over my lifetime. The mission of a save my sense is to change people's lives through your finances sense by sense, if I have to. Mm. But that, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to change lives. Amazing. What kinds of problems do you help people tackle with their finances? I like to draw on the fact that I've seen it all because I've reached early retirement. I know personal finance soup to nuts. And from my day job, although I can't really share much about it, I also have insight into how professional investors think. So I also have the foundational knowledge for explaining how investing in companies work. Uh, to people. And that's why I can, I can explain investing so that you don't feel like you're a dumb person. Um, cause so many financial institutions <laughs> advertise investing products and they make it sound so complicated. It's like you would pay for their unnecessary advice. I offer basically two main offerings. I have courses. The big course that I do is called the save my retirement masterclass. It's a crash course, uh, about three hours of videos that teach you the ins and outs of saving a retirement in the United States, things like the 401ks, IRAs, brokerages, and things like that. And then I also have private coaching, which is um, cost more money. And that I have short-term and long-term plans. So people who come to me and they have an immediate need, like I need to figure out which order to pay off my debts, or I'm changing jobs, my income's changing, how do I plan for that? That's like a short-term plan. And then I also have people who are interested in retirement, are interested in maybe early retirement, like, like my situation, who come from a long-term plan, which is a more involved coaching plan where I do like a forecast and I talk people through scenarios and ideal plans to kind of like meet their financial goals. Amazing. Well, listeners, if you have any money questions, go follow Save My Sense and reach out to Shang if you need help with any of that stuff. One last question I have for you is, I think it's really cool how you're running Save My Sense as a side thing, but you said you're not actually taking profit out of it. It's all going back um, into the business, into scholarships, I think it was. How did you decide on a, working another job now that you're work optional and B, having Save My Sense as, as almost this philanthropic yeah. venture. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, Save My Sense, the proceeds are donated. Um, it's giveaways. It's donating to charities. There's a lot of things that I do with that. Some of it is invested so it can be 
given at a larger amount in the future. On the work side, look, I'm a parent and children, healthcare is significant. And I just don't want to be in a situation where I have to pay for a crazy medical expense out of pocket. So I think the main reason for working is for the healthcare, but also I, I tried like not doing anything. I had a one year maternity leave and I was also bored out of my mind. So <laughs> I, I like working, just not as much as I used to. So I've, I've been ramping down work. I'm going to part-time and probably not going to work at the same intensity as I did before. And also we, we have other family members that we like to help. And so any um, extra money that we have, we also like to use that to bless our family members and, and help them out whenever we can. Spreading that abundance. Yep. I love it. Oh, well, that's all the questions I have for you, but was there any other nugget of advice that you wanted to leave with me? 